So John 14, as we pick it up there, um, we're seeing Jesus at a very interesting time right now in his ministry, in his life here. We're, we're seeing him sitting with his disciples now in the upper room as he's preparing his disciples, as he's teaching them. Uh, this is known as the upper room discourse. Can we just change those lights right there too? These ones there. And um, so he's preparing his disciples for what's about to come. And that is that he's about to go to the cross. And we're just a few hours away from Jesus going to the cross. But what's been happening now is Jesus is looking to share with his disciples, prepare them, teach them. He's dropping a couple bombshells on them because he's told them now just in chapter 13, hey, listen, guys, I'm going away. And where I'm going, you can't come. So right away, the disciples are thinking, wait a second, hold on. We've gotten pretty accustomed to hanging out with you, Jesus. We've gotten pretty used to you taking care of us. We've become a little bit dependent in case you didn't know. And Jesus, of course, says, no, I know. I know you've become a little dependent here. But he's dropping this bombshell on them. Then he says, also, one of you are going to betray me. Remember, he's in this intimate setting, the last supper, Passover dinner with his disciples. One of you is going to betray me. Just imagine what everybody's thinking at that point. And then he tells Peter, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. So right now, as we move into chapter 14, I think these guys are feeling like, oh my goodness, the, the, the ground is caving in underneath us. Everything is falling apart. What's going on? We're, we're, we feel like we're losing control here. Ever been in that situation? Ever been through a period of time where you've just experienced levels of stress that you've never felt before or anxiety or just this kind of discouragement? And it's heavy and it's hard, isn't it? I remember a time in my life with my, my wife and I just, we were going through some things and just experiencing stress like we've never experienced before. You know, losing sleep at night, um, not just even appetite getting diminished, just kind of butting heads at times. I mean, I remember this so strongly like it was yesterday. It's still very fresh to me. Actually, it was just a week ago. Maybe that's why it's a little bit fresh still with me, but... Um, but yeah, we've been going through some times too of just heaviness and difficulty and, and, you know, as much as it's exciting and fun as we're building a house right now, there's been a lot of stressful moments that accompany that as well. And no doubt you have experienced moments in your life, if you're a human, if you've got a heart that's pumping and breathing, you've experienced those anxious times and days. In fact, I think that's a real epidemic in our in our culture and in our society today. It's what the disciples, I'm sure, were feeling in this moment here as we transition from chapter 13 to 14. But notice what we see now as Jesus cuts through all of this kind of tension, heaviness, uh, and, and a heartache perhaps going on. And he comes in with some incredible, wonderful words of encouragement. Notice what he says here in John 14, verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Let not your hearts be troubled. How wonderful must that have been to hear that from this very man of perfect peace and gentleness. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Typically, if we're going through some anxious times, stressful times, and we have a friend that comes alongside us and says, hey, don't worry about it. Just calm down. It'll be okay. You just want to, you know, bop them right between the eyes. You're like, don't tell me to calm down. That's not what I need to hear right now. But I'm sure coming from Jesus, I mean, this carried some some weight and authority behind it it's the words he said to his disciples and and i believe it's words that he wants us to hear today 
don't let your heart be troubled. Let not your heart be troubled. Now listen, Jesus isn't saying that he's going to remove all of the trouble or remove all the circumstances that lead to you experiencing stressful, anxious times. But what he says is that in the moment there, don't let your heart be troubled. Guard, guard your heart. You see, we can't control our circumstances, but we can control how we react to how we deal with those circumstances. And that's what we can take care of here through the Lord's help and through the Lord's strength. We control what's going on in the inner self. We choose what we're going to do with those things that are, are pressuring us or troubling us or troubling us. Throughout the Bible, we've seen several exhortations here along those lines. Be not afraid. Be not dismayed. Fear not. Be of good courage. Do not be afraid. To hear a common thing there, that's something that the Lord is saying for you to do. Be not afraid. Be not dismayed. Be of good courage. Change your, your, your thinking, your attitude towards these things. In the moment of the circumstances, the stress, the, the, the pressure that comes in, yes, it can cause us to have great fear and worry, but the Lord says, you don't need to feel that way. You don't need to be troubled over that. Now, I know it's easy to say that. It's another thing to do. Wouldn't you agree? Yes, we know the fact, we know the truth here, but... Oh man, in the midst of it, man, I can't, I find it so hard to deal with that. But look at what Jesus says next. He says there, and in fact, did I even read all of chapter 14? Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. So Jesus gives us now a, a real help in moving from, okay, I know what to do to now, here's what we need to do to put this into practice to experience this heart not being troubled. He says, believe in me. Believe. And let me remind you, this is a key word that we see through the Gospel of John. That's why the Gospel of John is being written, isn't it? That you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that by believing in his name, you may have, you may have life, or believing you may have life in his name. So it's all about believing. But you see, we believe a lot of things. We have kind of a a intellectual ascent of, of knowledge, of belief in certain things. There's many people today that will say, oh, sure, I, I believe in God. I believe that there's a God out there, that there's a creator out there, there's some power out there. Oh, sure, I believe in the existence of God, but they haven't believed God in the way that John is speaking of because what John is speaking of is not just a, a, an intellectual ascent. John is speaking of in that word believe is it's something that moves us into kind of action it's a belief that moves you you don't just believe something about someone rather you are putting your full confidence in them it's a belief that says i am wholeheartedly holding on to this as this kind of assurance and hope now it's kind of like if you were to go hang gliding anybody ever gone hang gliding in here come on tony really hang gliding man i want to do that that is so cool. Was it good? And you, you've lived to tell about it. That's great. But listen, so, wow. No, it didn't ruin anything. That's, I'm just like, I'm impressed. I'm like, I mean, I've respected you, but now that respect has gone to a whole nother level, Tony. Like, you have just gone way up a notch now in my books, let me tell you. That's amazing, hang gliding. Wow. So I would love to do that. But, you know, you can believe, and you watch somebody jumping off a mountain 
on this, you know, human-sized kite is really what it is, right? And, and you see them jumping off a mountain, and they descend down, and they land, and you go, yeah, sure, that's what it's designed for. I believe that that kite is going to safely bring this person down the mountain. You can believe that, but will you believe it to do that for you? Will you take that step and say, I'm ready to jump into that harness and I'm ready to jump off this mountain and hang glide down. You see, you can believe that it'll do that for someone else, but do you believe it'll do it for you? And, and so that belief now, it moves you from not just believing that that's what it's designed to do, but it's believing to now where you're saying, I'm going to commit myself to this. I'm going to put my trust in that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wholeheartedly put my confidence in this thing to do what it's supposed to do. That's what John is speaking about when, when you believe in, in God, when you believe in him. So Jesus says, listen, you believe in God, believe also in me. Trust me to help you, to provide for you, to take care of you. People, would, the disciples had no problem believing that God was more than able, that God's a God of wonders. Well, Jesus says, listen, you can believe me in that way. Just as you believe in God, believe also in me that, you know, I'm not going to abandon you. I'm not going to leave you. I'm going to help you. I'm going to be with you. This is what Jesus is saying. And it's another claim to equality with God, as we'll see happening a few times in this passage. So we have this wonderful promise now that Jesus says, listen, put your trust in me. Believe me. Don't, Don't feel like you're all alone in this. Believe me, believe that I can help you, that I'm here to comfort you, that I'm here to uphold you in this moment of heartache or difficulty or stress or anxiety. Believe me that I'm able to uphold you. And we have a wonderful promise, again, for the troubled heart throughout scripture when, as Paul writes in Philippians 4, 6 to 7, be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication and thanksgiving, present your, re- your request or let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Don't you love that? This is a, something that we need to put into practice. You know, like I said, stress and worry, I think it's just become such an epidemic in our in our society where now it's just the kind of the expectation so much so that you know universities they're they're providing now you know quiet rooms for their students rooms where you can just get away even little pods i've seen now where you can just go and have a nap and you just calm yourself down right it's not great i mean university is going back to preschool it's like snap time now right gotta have your naps i like nothing wrong with a good nap I'll, i'll be having one this afternoon i'm sure i love them but these quiet rooms now are being provided for students where it's like a way to just get away and just to kind of, you know, go into silence and just, you know, block everything out. Well, listen, you know, the Lord has created this stress-free quiet room space for us long before there were universities. It's called your prayer closet. And he's called us to say, when you're anxious, come to me. Lay it on my feet. Bring it to me in, in prayer, supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which goes beyond what, what we can ever fathom or understand, is going to guard your hearts and minds. That's a real key to these things. So Jesus goes on now to share here. So troubled hearts, yeah, believe me. He reminds us of something now. He says, listen, guys, verse 2. 
In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. But I go to prepare a place for you. I love that. See, what we're going to be seeing here as we go through this passage is Jesus is going to make some amazing statements that are sure to bring peace to the troubled heart. He's going to tell us here that in my father's house are many mansions, that I'm going to prepare a place for you, and that he's going to receive us to himself, and that where he is, we may be also. So Jesus seeks to bring what? Comfort now. Peace to his disciples who no doubt have troubled hearts. You don't say, let not your heart be troubled to people that aren't troubled in heart. So Jesus starts off in this chapter because he knows this is where the disciples are at. But he's also coming to bring words of encouragement and comfort and peace to them through what he's sharing. And I want you to take this in today to learn of this, to understand not just what Jesus has for his disciples, but what he has for you today. So he says, in my father's house are many mansions. Isn't that great? Don't you love that? Now, the word mansions here actually means dwellings. That's a little translation of it. It means dwellings. I know you're all thinking about finally, finally having your mansions when you get to heaven. Like, I can't wait to go to, I can't wait to see what my mansion is going to be like, right? I know you're all thinking that. I know this is something that you are just dreaming about. Your your, your dream home is finally going to be realized, right? You're going to have a nice you know, white picket fence, nicely manicured lawn for once in your life. And you're going to be like, this is it, man. Paradise right there. This is going to be great. But I don't think this is exactly what Jesus is speaking of. Sorry to burst your bubble if that's your expectation of heaven. All right. Who needs, I mean, you don't want to be spending all of eternity having to clean your mansion. Like that's going to, that's going to take endless days just to keep your mansion clean and tidy. Don't be dealing with that, right? So it's not what Jesus is specifically referring to. He's speaking about dwellings. In other words, Jesus is saying here, in my father's house are many dwelling places. What we learn from that is that there is more than enough room for us all. For every person that puts their faith in Jesus, he's got a place for you. There is more than enough room for us all to gather together here for all of eternity. Now, this might simply be speaking of just our, our, our resurrected, glorified bodies. You understand that? That we're going to be given a glorified body, a body that's made and fit for eternity. Remember when Jesus uh, rose again from the grave and he returns to his disciples, he's got a physical body. They could touch, they could feel it's, it. It's got that kind of nature, but it wasn't now limited to a physical kind of dimension. He could, he could move, pass through a, a, a room with a locked door wall that he just appear or move from one place to another. His glorified body wasn't any longer held back by physical things. So that could be even what we're talking about with just our dwelling places. We're going to have a body fit for the heavens. Look at what Paul writes in, in 2 Corinthians 5 and 4. We know if our earthly house, this tent, speaking of our body, he says... We know that when that's destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Paul's speaking about our, our new glorified bodies. So Jesus says, listen, I go to prepare a place for you. Think about what that's going to be like. You know, the Lord spent six days creating this incredible world, the universe all around it. Think about the glories that we see in this creation. Six days. Well, Jesus it's been taking 2,000 years to prepare that place for you. Think about what he's got in store for you. That's exciting. I can't wait. But remember what Paul said when he was taken up to heaven? 
Remember when he, he came back and he's, he's kind of referring to himself like in a third person, like there was a person that, you know, was taken up to the heavens. He's, he's speaking about himself. But here's what he said, 2 Corinthians 12, 4, how he was caught up in paradise and heard inexpressible words, which it is not lawful for a man to utter. See, when Paul got a glimpse of heaven, he didn't return saying, oh my goodness, everybody, you can't imagine what I saw. Oh my goodness, the colors, the streets of gold. Oh, my mansion, man, let me tell you. He's not talking about what he saw. He's talking about what he heard. And it would be unlawful to even begin to try to describe the things that he heard. What do you think he was hearing? I think he was hearing just the sweetest worship that he's ever experienced before. He's hearing the, the angelic host, the, the 24 elders that are, are, are gathering together at the throne day and night without ceasing. They're singing out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And they're just hearing wonderful praise. They're just hearing the glories of God ringing out in a way that he's never heard before. That's what Paul returns with going, I can't begin to describe heaven to you. But he's talking about just what he heard, not just what he saw. I think heaven, we get so fixed on all the things we're going to be benefiting from in heaven. I think we think about, oh man, yeah, it's going to be so good. I just think heaven is going to be heaven because we're going to be with Jesus and we're going to see him face to face and we're going to enjoy unhindered communion with God like we've never experienced before. That's why heaven is going to be so glorious. And I don't care. Mansion, no mansion. I don't care. Streets of gold. I just care that I'm going to be with Jesus. And we're going to be made like him for we shall see him as he is, First John tells us. That's amazing. That's what's going to make heaven, heaven, is just to be in communion with God, with our Savior. Hallelujah for that. First Corinthians 2.9 says, But as it is written, eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered in the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. So whatever picture you've got of heaven, Whatever you're expecting of heaven, just know that in your finite mind, it will never live up to what it's actually going to be. In fact, it will be far greater. It will exceed your wildest dreams of what heaven is going to be like because we haven't even seen. We can't, we can't even fathom. We can't in our minds right now, our, our earthly, finite human minds, we cannot even Try to picture what heaven's like because it goes so far beyond what we can even compute and understand. Oh man, it's going to be good though. What a joy and blessing it is to live without hope of heaven. And that's what Jesus is getting at for his disciples, friends. He's saying, listen, don't let your hearts be troubled because there's glorious days waiting you. And I'm preparing a place for you. And he says in verse three, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. So if Jesus is preparing a place for us, guess what his desire is for us to be there, right? He's not preparing a place for us and say, oh man, I really built this incredible place for you guys, but I kind of, yeah, changed my mind. I'm going to go a different route here now and uh, sorry, just, you know, not going to do it. You know, that's what we're doing right now. I'm, I'm doing my best to, to build a, 
uh, a place for my family where I have a lot of fun building a house. Also a lot of stress that was real. What I started a message with that was real. So pray for us, but it's been crazy. But I don't build a house. And by me building a house, I mean our contractors that are doing all the work because I have no idea what I'm doing. So, so I don't build a house now for my family. Say, hey guys, great house is complete, but you know what? Uh, we're going to just actually move down down the street and we're just going to rent a shed there from our neighbors over there and we're going to live there. We wouldn't do that. No, I'm building a place that we can enjoy together, right? So that we can function as a family and have a, a, a dwelling together where I can invite all of you over on Sunday afternoon and hang out together. That's what I'm looking forward to. And sorry, we haven't been able to do that, but there's just not enough room in our RV to have you over right now. So sorry about that, but um, I'm looking forward to those days. But we do this so that we can be together. Jesus, I'm preparing a place so that I can be with you, so that you can be with me, you see. Now, if he's preparing a place for us that we might be there, it means that he's also going to come and receive us Again, now a lot of people look at that as, you know, referring to the second coming of Christ. That's what a lot of people talk about, you know, where we'll be united with him for all of eternity. But when Jesus comes at a second coming, he comes to set up his home here on earth. It's not a receiving us and taking us back to the place he's preparing for us in his father's house. Second coming seems to be speaking of a different thing than what is being referred to in John 14. So this doesn't seem like it's speaking of the second coming, but rather I believe this is speaking of the rapture. See, the rapture is that event where Jesus calls up his people, the church, the bride of Christ, and he meets them in the air and he takes them back home to heaven where Jesus is today. This passage, I believe, is one of those very clear passages that speak of the rapture. Now, a lot of people say, no, 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 rapture. That's just something people have made up. The word rapture is not in the Bible. That's just a made up kind of doctrine. It's for those people that just want to escape out of reality, you know, and just kind of their, their hope. But you know that word rapture, it comes from the Latin word raptus. When that was translated from the Greek Bible, they got it from this word and from this passage in 1 Thessalonians 4, 6. Dean to 17, another reference to the rapture. And says this, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up, caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. So that word in the Greek, caught up, is what was translated to raptus in Latin, where we get our word rapture. So it's not a made up doctrine it's in the bible i believe jesus is referring to it here in john 14 paul talks about first thessalonians 4 and here also in first corinthians 15 verse 51 to 52 behold i tell you a mystery we shall not all sleep but we shall all be changed a great sign you know to put over the nursery door we shall all sleep but we shall all be changed but it's also referring to the the rapture here where in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall all be changed. So if we're going to be caught up at the second coming of Christ, why are we being caught up simply to come back with the Lord to the earth? Like, a, you know, 
a reverse bungee jump. That doesn't seem to make sense, right? So I believe we're caught up and we're going to go to the, with Jesus to the Father's house. Now, this also is such a, a wonderful picture or parallel to the Jewish wedding and the phases of a Jewish wedding. So when Jesus is speaking about this, the terminology that he's using here in John 14, many people in this day would be very familiar with and, and tie into, oh yeah, this is what we're familiar with. Because what would happen for a couple to get married, it would begin, the first phase was the betrothal. The betrothal where the, the parents of you know each couple would kind of agree on thinking, I think my son would really work well with your daughter in marriage. Let's bring them together. you know. And they'd work out a price. A dowry would be given for the bride. It was based on the father's wealth. It was based on, again, her, you know, um, just kind of like, what's the right way to explain that here? Um, based on, on the father's wealth, but also on the bride's worth and how the, the groom saw her. So think about this now. Dowry's paid. There's been a great dowry paid for the bride of Christ. It was paid not through, you know, material wealth, but through the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus saw such worth in his bride that he gave himself for us. He paid the ultimate price to bring us to him, dying on a cross. So that's the betrothal. And then the next phase of the Jewish wedding is the engagement. So during the engagement, the engagement would last a minimum of a year. It could go a lot longer than that because sometimes the betrothal took place at a very young age. And so now they'd be waiting. And so this engagement period would last a minimum of a year, but it was also time where the bride was to be observed for her purity it was a preparation for the bride in, in all those things. And also during this time of engagement, the groom was away at his father's house, preparing a place for him and his bride, building on an addition to his father's home so that they would have a place to live. So when Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place, they're thinking, oh yeah, it's exactly what the groom does in preparation for his bride. And so now during that engagement, the groom, in, when he finished the, the, the work getting done at the father's house, he would come and receive his bride to himself and bring her back to the father's house. But that would come at a time when it was unexpected. Nobody knew the time. Just as for us now as the bride of Christ. What are we doing? We're waiting for Jesus to call us home. And we don't know when it's going to come. I wish we knew. But what are we to do? We're to live ready. Pure is the church, the bride of Christ. We're to live with anticipation, expectation that Jesus could come at any moment, any time and take us home. So we live ready. So the bride, the groom would come, gather the bride, and the bride and the groom would go back to the father's house and they would go into kind of a, a, a secret chamber where they would, you know, consummate the marriage and they would be for a week without coming out. And it was a week now where the guests of the wedding part, the, the, the whole wedding guests would all be there at the father's house and there would be a, just a celebration for the whole week. But the groom and the bride would stay inside and they'd be waited on, served, it's kind of like their honeymoon. It's kind of like the only time in their life that they really experienced just a nice vacation and being waited on that way. But then after that week, the groom now would bring the bride out, introduce her to all the wedding guests, and they would enter into the, the, the marriage supper, the great feast together. 
So think about this now in picture of the rapture of the church. Jesus comes, brings the, the bride of Christ home to heaven. What's going to go on now? Well, for seven years. While we're in heaven with the Lord, there's going to be a tribulation period back here on earth where God is directly intervening with the affairs of man and he's drawing his people back to him, but he's also judging the world for rejecting Jesus. So for seven years, and then after those seven years, Jesus returns again. He comes out of heaven and who does he come with? The bride of Christ. Revelation 19 says that the saints are with him at his side. That's you. That's me. And we're coming back with Jesus at a second coming where we get introduced again to the world as the bride of Christ, where we haven't been for one week, seven days, but seven years. And then we merge with Jesus at the second coming where he ushers in now that millennial reign of Christ, where we'll enjoy the marriage supper of the lamb. So the picture is amazing. What goes on in a Jewish wedding with what Jesus is speaking about here. And so there's a lot of people who talk to the go, oh, the rapture. That's just escapism. That's just wishful thinking. No, I believe that the Bible speaks to that very clearly. And it lines up with exactly what's happening when you go through Revelation, when you, when you look at passages like this here. So moving on here, verse four, Jesus says, where I go, you know, and the way you know, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Well, Jesus again now comforts his disciples, letting them know that he's not going to some private place, all right? He's not going to be gone and that's it. He's not a part of some secret society. He says, you know where I'm going and you know the way. At least they should have known these things. But remember, we're talking about the disciples here, right? They didn't get half the things. In fact, they didn't get 99% of the things that Jesus was saying, right? They're like, oh, what are you talking about here? But yet Jesus with grace continues to pour into them patience. And I, I take heart in that because, you know, there's times we think, does Jesus really have patience for me? Yeah, he does. He's been with the disciples for three years. He's got more enough patience for you, right? So Thomas speaks up and he lets Jesus know that they're not sure what he's talking about. Listen, this is an important question to ask. Where are you going? What is the way? How do we get there? I'm glad Thomas asks this question and so jesus says verse six he says i'm the way the truth and the life no one comes to the father except through me what sweet words here to hear jesus doesn't point you in the right direction he doesn't just show you a way he says i am the way i'm the way you see we live in a day where people hate to hear that this is the only way to the father People say, that's too rigid, that's too narrow. Everybody wants to have their truth. This is what's true for me. This is what works for me. This is what I feel is acceptable or right. People can be very stubborn because they're hit with the gospel very clearly right here. Yet they will fight against it and deny it simply because they say, this is too exclusive. This is too narrow. Did you know that truth can be very narrow? Last time I checked, two plus two still equals four. As much as you might not like that and think, I like five or I like three. That sounds better. I don't want two plus two to equal four. I don't want to have to conform to what you say is right and true. But truth is narrow. Truth is very dogmatic. 
There's not a lot of wiggle room when it comes to truth in general. And yet we're living in a day where, no, you can decide what is true for you. But Jesus says, listen, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. It's very narrow. In fact, he says in Matthew 7, verse 13 and 14, enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. Now, many want to think that whatever path they're on, as long as they're sincere in their beliefs, you know, as long as they hold true to their convictions and treat others well, well, that path is going to get them to God. You've heard that before, right? People say, I believe that all paths lead to God, right? Hey, guess what? They're right. All paths do lead to God. Peter says in 1 Peter 4, 5, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Everybody is going to stand and give an account before God one day, whatever path they've been on. But here's the deal. Only one way, only one path leads to eternal life with Jesus. And that's through Jesus. Because he's the way, the truth, and life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. Now here's what I love about this. Other religions will tell you, here's what you need to do to reach that next level. You know, to reach nirvana. To reach that next phase of reincarnation to reach paradise or or to have a good standing in the afterlife here's what you need to do they'll give you a system they'll give you a formula that you need to follow but jesus says it's found in me we don't follow a system we don't follow a religion we get to follow a person and have life in and relationship with a person with the very son of god jesus says it's found in me it's found in a person It's not by doing, it's not by achieving, it's not by a system. It's about a relationship. And that's what Jesus is calling us into. I love that. We're called the faith in Jesus who alone can save. So no one comes to the Father except through me. He says, be sure you're not relying on any other means. You know, I've I've mentioned so many times before where, you know, I I love to talk to people, get things in a spiritual conversation. And I'll ask them, so if you were to die and stand before God one day and he would ask you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? You know, I ask that question a lot of people and the majority of the time I get just like blank, like, oh, uh, wow, that's, mm, I don't know. And I'll be talking to a lot of people. I'll say, oh, I'm a Christian. I go to church and I'll ask them that anyway. So I want to know what they're, what they're truly believing in. And even among Christians, I hear so many times, oh, well, um, yeah, what, what would I say? What? Listen, here's the deal. Jesus gives us the answer right here. And the very first word that should be out of your mouth, if you ever ask that question, why are you going to heaven? The very first word that comes out of your mouth should be Jesus. It's just the old Sunday school answer that you give, right? When you don't know the answer, you just say Jesus, because 99% of the time you're going to be right. And yet I'm, I'm dumbfounded as to how many people don't give me that answer. When I ask him that question, are you going to heaven? Why are you going to heaven? The first thing coming out of your mouth should be Jesus. Because Jesus died on the cross to save my sin. Because my faith is in Jesus. Because I've put my trust in Jesus as my Savior. That's the only way that anybody's going to heaven. It's not by living a good life. It's not by doing good things. It's not by being nice to your neighbor. It's not by being charitable. 
It's through your faith in Jesus. All those things are great things to do, but none of those things get you into heaven because Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one goes to the Father except through me, through trust and belief in him. I hope today that every person sitting here in this room has full confidence and assurance that you are holding on to, clinging to, abiding in Jesus as your only means of salvation and going to heaven because Jesus has prepared a great place for you and there's plenty of room, but the only way in is through faith in him. Is that where it's at today for you? I hope it is because if you're going, well, it's, it's Jesus and I've been doing this. No, you changed the gospel. You changed it. It's not Jesus and, it's Jesus only. You can't be holding on Jesus and trying other things, hoping that this is what's going to get you in. Just cover my bases, you know. Just making sure I got all... No, there's no covering your bases here. Jesus covers it all. It's only found in Jesus. May your trust be in him today. Because he's provided salvation. He died on the cross so that you can be forgiven of sin, saved, and have life in him. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And praise the Lord, this is not just life to look forward to. It's life now. He gives us the abundant life, John 10 tells us. The full life. The good life. Now, life doesn't get any better than it does with Jesus. Is your hope in Him. For the unbeliever, life on earth is as good as it gets. For the unbeliever, Life on earth is as good as it gets. But for the believer, life on earth is the worse it gets. It only gets better in and through Jesus Christ. Faith in him. Well, we've got a lot more to cover here because I went through a lot more with the first service. And if I don't cover it now, we're going to be all out of sync next Sunday. So where are we at? Verse 7. By the way, this is the sixth I am statement that Jesus makes. When he says, I am, the way, remember, he's, he's declaring himself to be God here. This is a huge statement he makes. He said, I am, the ego, a me, the very words that God spoke to Moses at the burning bush when, when Moses says, who shall I say he sent me? I am. The very name of God, Jehovah, Yahweh. I am. Jesus says, I am. I'm, I'm one with God here. He's making a huge statement here in saying that. Well, verse 7, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father and it is sufficient for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the father. So how can you say, show us the father? See, so oftentimes the, things that, that, the thing that keeps people from really entering through the narrow gate is uh, a wrong view of God. They think of God as being this hard, mean guy that's just ready to pounce on you when you step out of line. But Jesus says, listen, if you know me, you've you've known the Father. Because what did Jesus do? He came full of grace and truth. Came full of love. He came to serve and not to be served. And he modeled really the heart of God. And this is not a new thing where it's like, okay, God's God's kind of had a change of character now, everybody. I'm here to reveal it to you. No, this was always God. Compassionate, slow to anger, abounding with mercy and grace. This has always been God's heart. And Jesus came to 
demonstrate it, to live it out, to make this tangible now for people to see. If you've known me, he says, you would have known the Father. And then he says in verse 10, do you not believe that I'm in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I'm in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. So Jesus is showing his disciples that he came to do the, the will of God. And he did so because they're one. There's, there's equality, perfect unity and harmony between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus says his works should speak for themselves, right? If you don't believe me, believe in the works. Remember, that's what kind of led Nicodemus to Jesus in John chapter 3. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So Nicodemus knew, yeah, the works speak for themselves. Jesus demonstrated that he is from God, with God, and is God. And he says, most assuredly, I say to you in verse 12, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do because I go to my father. Did you hear that? Did you hear that? Now, this is where you might think, Jesus, I think you've gone too far here. Hold on a second. Pump the brakes a bit, Jesus. What are you talking about? Greater works? Are you serious? Are you, we're going to do greater works than you know. That's impossible. Right? And I know you tried, Right? Walking on water. We're like, that's awesome. I want to do that. Sink every time. Multiplying food. How I prayed for that. Nothing happens. What are you talking about greater works? I can't. That's not in me. I can't do that. Listen, I don't believe Jesus is speaking of greater works in power and in might. I believe he's talking about greater works in in volume and in space. You see, when Jesus was here on earth... He was limited to three years on this earth in a general location. Nation of Israel is who he came to preach to and serve. So he's in Israel, one person at work. But here's the deal. When he goes to the Father, as he says, what's going to happen? The Holy Spirit's going to be poured out. The Holy Spirit's going to be poured out on who? The church. So now Jesus is going to have millions of people going out, operating in the same power that was filling Jesus, now operating in not just one person, but millions of people to carry out the work of God, the message of God. The day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit poured out, people from all over are gathering together. And what happened? Thousands were saved. The early church apostles are going out, signs and wonders, preaching the gospel. And it's impacting the whole world. People are turning to Christ. Greater works, Jesus says, you're going to do. Man, I was limited. Not in power, but in time and space. But now, man, when the Holy Spirit comes upon the church, oh man, you just wait and see what's going to happen. And we see the fruit of that. Look at how the word has gone around the whole world. People taking it out through the power at work in them, the empowering of the Holy Spirit, just as Jesus was empowered by. Amazing. Now, we need to be sure we don't just think we're capable of being better than Jesus or doing greater things all on our own. No, we, we need him. We don't say, thanks, Jesus, I got this. See you up in heaven. No, we need to be dependent on him. 
leaning on him, trusting him. We need his help. And he's given us an incredible privilege for this help through prayer. Look at verse 13. Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Now, this is a verse that's gotten completely turned upside down. Taken out of context, abused by many people that think, ah, that's it. As long as I say the name of Jesus, man, whatever I ask, I'm going to get. And in fact, the more authoritatively I say it, or shall I say, the more of a southern drawl I use, in the name of Jesus, yes, name it and claim it, you know, blob it and grab it, whatever you want to say. That's what I'm going to get. And so when I use that formula, oh man, I'm going to have everything I want. And a lot of people have abused this. Well, it's right there. Whatever you ask, I will do it. But you see, we don't tag on the name of Jesus as some magical formula that now he has to do what we ask that he's obligated to. Jesus, I said your name. Got to do it now. And I said it like I think the way I'm supposed to say it. Jesus, right? That's got to count for something. But using the name Jesus is not some magical formula. What Jesus is saying is that when you come, pray according to my name meaning my nature, my will, my character. You pray in line with me and what you ask I will do. And that's how we're going to impact the world. When we're carrying out the work of God for the glory of God, too many people have turned it around for themselves. They've made it about themselves. Jesus says, no, when you're operating in a way where you're serving me and you're living for my glory, man, that's what I'm going to honor. And that's what I'm going to do. Prayer does not move God to our wishes. And that's what a lot of people thought. Man, if I pray really earnestly, where I, and man, veins popping on my forehead, man, that's going to be huge. That's really going to cause God to just move now to what I'm praying for. Our prayer does not move God. It moves us in line with his will and his work. And that's what we seek the Lord for. That's why we pray in his name. Lord, your will be done, not mine. That's when we will see great things and be able to do great things when it's done for his glory and in his name. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. And we're going to just close with a, a bit of ministry time waiting on the Lord here. But here's some things to think about here. What is it that brings peace to a troubled heart? Well, it's our belief in Christ. You believe in God, believe also in me, Jesus says. It's our heavenly hope. We know that this world is temporal. Jesus is preparing a place for us. And he's preparing us for that place. It's our knowledge of the Father, knowing that he's a good God, loving God, gracious God. Jesus demonstrated that, showed it so that we might believe it. And lastly, it's our power in prayer. He's given us the means to be finding strength and help in him and through him. And that comes as we pray. Let us do that. So let's stand together. And we're going to take some time to just wait on the Lord.